Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Yeah, I'm great. How are you? Doing all right. Uh, had a little vacation earlier this week, or like for the little Easter break, and I'm feeling... I mean, I'm being thrown right back into school, which is, you know, fine. It is what it is. But I do feel more rejuvenated and I do have uh, some more clarity. So I think it was a vacation well spent. I'm excited to, you know, be back and be able to get back into the into the swing of things for the last couple of weeks. Or I guess for the la- last week, we didn't actually record an episode. We uh, recorded last week's episode the week before so that I'd be able to, uh, you know, do this whole thing, which I appreciated. But uh, I did realize how that time off alone was able to affect my workflow, and I'm excited to just experience some greater periods of productivity and also further testify to the uh, principle of rest as a means of creating, I mean, making yourself the best version of yourself that you can be. Like there's a lot of emphasis placed on grind culture in our society today. Just, you know, no rest, no sleep, sleep when you're dead and all that stuff. But, uh, Hmm. you know, the best of you can actually not be harnessed without rest. And uh, ironically enough, interestingly enough, the Sabbath day is actually discussed in uh, this week's readings. It was discussed in last week's readings as well. But uh, rest truly does have a purpose in our in our lives. The Sabbath does have a purpose. And uh, part of that is to indeed create us or turn us into, um, you know, more of the divine beings that we are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And I definitely increased my testimony of that uh, this past week. So I'm excited to explore some of that today, assuming we get to discuss the Sabbath day, if we want to do that anymore. But if not, that's also fine too. Mm -hmm. There is more than enough material to discuss in in this week's lesson, and perhaps even in the uh, uh, scriptures or the chapters that were left out of this week's Come Follow Me. So, uh, right. Shall we dive so, in? Or yeah, more? so last week we left off with the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and we should be starting with Exodus 21 now, but for some reason the Come Follow Me people have skipped chapters. And mm-hmm. I'm, I have mixed feelings about this because I see that they want to make it accessible and to cover Everything is a trade-off because the more chapters you cover, the less deeply you will be able to go into any one of them. Mm -hmm. And there's certain things that are more important than others. I definitely think we should all be familiar with the scriptures. Yeah. And there are some biases to what they choose to leave in and what they leave out. And, And we'll get to that later on. But I think there's a lot of important material throughout the Torah especially on issues of social and economic justice and environmental justice. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people might think, oh, that's not the important parts. I, I really think there's this cultural thing in our church about, well, what's important? What's important is the nuclear family, going to the temple, and seeing grandma again, right? Anything mm-hmm. that's not one of those things, they're like, oh, who cares if there's poor people starving, right? That's not a gospel issue, uh, maybe I maybe I'm being a little bit exaggerating, but I think that they uh, we don't actually focus on love for God and love for neighbor the way it actually should be in our church. It, it's mm-hmm. did you check off the ordinances so you can see Grandma again, and that's really um, and are you obeying the prophet? Right, that's really the two things that people mm-hmm. fixate on to the exclusion of the rich material that's here in the Torah. 
So that's one caution. Okay. Another caution is I don't want to hear anyone talk about the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. First of all, uh, that's dripping with an anti-Jewish perspective and bias. So first of all. And second of all, it's not even faithful to the sources. You've got a rich, wide diversity of perspectives of God in the Hebrew Bible and a rich and wide diversity of perspectives of God in the New Testament. You're going to find uh, threats and violence from God in, in both Testaments. You're going to find love and grace and peace from God in both. You're going to, you're going to find everything in both. Yeah. And in fact, you could make an argument that there really is no eternal damnation anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. Like the worst thing that will happen to you is you die. But how bad is that? We all die. I mean, that's right. So it's only in the new that you really get a defined doctrine of eternal damnation and all these other things. So so I don't want anyone to say, oh, look how violent the Hebrew Bible God is. And we'll get to this, the, a very famous passage in uh, Exodus 34 about how loving and kind and patient God is and how gracious and slow to anger God is. We'll get there. But Sweet. I wanted to just highlight there's just so many things I could talk about. Well, can we at least talk about uh, what we're missing in this week's Come Follow Me? Like, we don't have to say too much about it, but I do want to give people an idea of the content that we don't get to cover. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into that right now in Genesis 21. Wonderful. So these chapters, you've just got an assortment of uh, texts, not really a lot of narrative, but you've got uh, a v- wide variety of, of what I'm going to call legal materials. These are the, the laws of, of the people. So yeah, there's one little brief thing that I want to talk about in Exodus 21. This is verses uh, 10 and 11. It's about some of the requirements and obligations of a man who takes on additional wives. So here's what it says, quote, If another woman he should take for himself, he must not stint for this one her meals, her wardrobe, or her conjugal rights. And if he does not do these three for her, she shall go free without payment, with no money. Okay, so this is basically saying that if you take on an additional wife, uh, and here's here, Alter's translation makes it sound like it's the the second wife, but in uh, my view is that it's likely to to be the first wife. That if you take on a, a second wife, you must not deprive the first one of these three things, being food, clothing, and the marital rights. So. Yes, there's the whole polygamy piece, but even apart from the polygamy piece, it implies, the rabbis have deduced, that a man is obligated to satisfy his wife in these three areas. And if he is not doing so, he is not fulfilling the terms of the marriage covenant, and she has grounds for divorce if he does not provide these three things for her. And guess which of these three things I want to talk about? So marital rights then. Yes, that's the one of the three that that I'm going to talk about. Okay. Because especially men who are listening to this, uh, straight men who are listening to this, we've got a problem. You know how there's this wage gap between the genders? There's also – I don't even know how to talk about this in a very PC way. But there is a gap of access to uh, 
bodily awareness and sexual pleasure and okay i would have just said that you could just say there's an orgasm gap oh yes there's an (laughs) orgasm gap okay yeah that's fine and as a gay dude like i didn't know about this because i'm not flowing in that world so i didn't know uh like someone needs to check on the straight people but apparently (laughs) there is an not apparently there actually is an asymmetry in sexual satisfaction even within the same couple, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that is literally a Torah justice issue. I mean, it it's literally a Torah justice issue. And I want to speak on behalf of of this. Uh, it's it's a little bit weird to talk about, but 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 it, it, I don't know. Like it's I don't even know how to say what I'm saying, other than. Um, co- straight couples need to be mindful of this and need need to be mindful of equity in the relationship and make sure that there is sufficient uh, access for all parties involved and that the cultural priority on the man's pleasure is not is not to be sustained without uh, without critique. Uh, and I want to quote from the Talmud on this. And notice that this relationship is actually asymmetrical. In uh, rabbinic Judaism, the husband, in a straight relationship, a husband has the obligation to sexually satisfy his wife, but not the other way around. The woman does not have an obligation to sexually satisfy the husband. And that is uh, derived by the rabbis exactly from this verse right here, because you can see that even in this verse, there's an asymmetrical obligation. Now, Paul, I'm not going to talk about Paul, but he tends to make it a little more egalitarian in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, implying that husbands and wives are obligated to each other. But we're not going to get into that, because that'll take me another three hours to deconstruct all of that. (laughs) But... Let me read a, uh, there's numerous texts from the Talmud about this, uh, and in fact, like I said, it would be grounds for divorce if a man does not fulfill his obligation, uh, his sexual obligation to his wife. But the interesting thing about that is, it was, how much is enough? And that was relative to the profession of the man. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting, yeah. So here's the Talmud, the tractate Ketubot. Ketubot means marriage contracts, 61b. Quote, the times for conjugal duty prescribed in the Torah are for men of independent means every day, for laborers twice a week, for donkey drivers once a week, for camel drivers once in 30 days, for sailors once in six months, Close quote. And um, here I am thinking, wow, wouldn't it be good to be one of those sailors? <laughs> <laughs> Once in six months. No. Um, and I should, uh, what it is, is um, in part it has to do with like how far, how much time away from home is the man, right? Some of these professions require the man to be a- a- away from home. Uh, there was also provision in the Torah that for the first year of marriage, the man n- was not required to go off to war. So there was this one year of, of uh, one year period where he was able to be home with his wife. 
Another thing to take into account where it says every day, that does not mean literally every day, 365 days a year, because of the prohibition against relations with a woman who happens to be menstruating. And the way they counted those days could be even up to half of the uh, menstrual cycle because they counted those days fairly conservatively so as to uh, put a fence around the obligation and make sh- and make doubly sure that you do not transgress. So it could be uh, every day for about half of the month. Anyway, so what is your reaction to this? Were you aware that in rabbinic Judaism there was this uh, this obligation of men to uh, sexually satisfy their wives? I was not, but I'm also not the least bit surprised by it. And I think there's a there's a structural. In- problems too right so many couples structural problems yeah structural problems in the way that our sexuality education works is many women who are socialized in our context don't know how their bodies work and many Ah. of their male partners don't know how their uh their uh, female partners bodies work right we've got right and and we've got a lot of cultural uh mess around around this issue uh, and and we had better talk about it better and i think not only can we learn from jews our jewish siblings on this but we can learn from lesbian couples on this right like i've never heard of a systemic orgasm gap in lesbian couples right i mm. definitely think that w- when you remove the man from the situation you definitely solve a lot of problems i hate to say it that way <laughs> but yeah but you do, um, and I don't want to like romanticize all lesbian relationships as perfect and great because that's not what I'm doing here. What I'm saying is you don't have the same systemic issues of the way men are way raised uh, to focus on the sexual pleasure of the men, uh, the lack of awareness of how bodies work. All this other stuff uh, may not take place with the same systemic causes when you have lesbian relationships, and and there's lesbian. Uh, sexuality education where women are allowed to explore how their bodies work and how their partner's bodies work. There's just a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm not an expert on this. I remember one of these Desnat people was, I can't remember how this, rarely do Desnat people come after me online. But one of them was, and I can't remember what the issue was, but one of them said something about me. And I said to him, you know, you and I have something in common. We've never sexually satisfied a woman. Ooh. And. <laughs> Dang. And, um, and that silenced him, right? The power of the Lord silenced him. I'm just saying, right? A lot of, a lot of, I don't want to blame it on conservative men, but I think there is this, this thing in conservative, um, among conservative men where, the rights and needs and desires of women, both positively and negatively around issues of consent, I mean, right? What they want and what they don't want is not respected. And I absolutely think that that is a biblical value. I know it's a biblical value. I just want to briefly mention the Song of Songs. I don't know how I can make this brief because we're already at 20 minutes. I've only studied, I've only talked about one verse. Oh, dear. (laughs) 
But briefly, the Song of Songs is a celebration of sexuality. It happens to be uh, a male character and a female character. But when we look at it closely, I think it justifies queer relationships because it's about uh, about pleasure. It's about what they want. It's about what they determine for themselves. If you look very carefully, the song of songs begins and ends with the woman's voice and it constantly talks about what she's pursuing and what she finds beautiful, what she finds delightful, what she is consenting to, what she is enthusiastic about. It's not about she's just there for the man's pleasure. She's there for her pleasure. And that mm-hmm. comes through very clearly through this um through this erotic material that's in our Bible, it's in our canon. I know Joseph, in a mar- in the margin of the JST manuscript, said that it was not inspired, but who knows? Like what authority that comment has? That comment was never ratified by the church. It was never published to the church in Joseph's lifetime. Uh, I think that statement has gotten way exaggerated in its importance. Who knows what you know what that what that means? But anyway. Yeah, I just got to tell you this, bro. Like when I was in the MTC, our uh, our MTC, like our uh, district presidency or whatever, told us to read the Song of Solomon once, just so we could say we read the whole Bible and mm-hmm. then staple it shut. That's wrong. That is really wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, so yeah. Um, I, I love the Song of Songs for for these reasons. And if you look at it, their relationship is never justified based on procreation. They never say, oh, we are, we're, it's okay that we're having sex because it's all about kids. Nope. They don't even mention the, the, the potential of children as a justification for their sexual relationships. It's because they're attracted to each other, right? That is the foundation of their uh, relationship and why they how they justify it is their passionate attraction for one another which absolutely is a queer value like when gay couples are passionately attracted to each other they're fulfilling the the whole ethic of the song of songs when they have consent uh, for one another when they um, celebrate one another that is where it's based it's not based on procreation it's not even based on gender in song of songs it doesn't say, oh, we're, we're, we're justified because Adam and Eve were male and female and we're male and female. No, it's d- that none of that comes into play. It is the pure celebration of the erotic, and this is sacred scripture. So everyone out there, I have to admit that my favorite porn is actually straight porn, and it's here in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, whoops. <laughs> Outstanding. Um. <laughs> But anyway, I, I've well, talked way quick, too much Derek, about this. I'll, what? I, real quick, I'll just add that uh, this whole idea of procreation being a requirement for a marriage to be valid is actually nowhere to be found in Scripture. Mm-hmm. I will acknowledge that procreation is a big thing and a big deal, especially when we start the stories of the patriarchs. But nowhere is it actually a requirement mm-hmm. to make a marriage valid. So I just want to make sure right. that is named. This is an idea that appears nowhere in the text, despite what you may see or hear from, you know, here at church regarding why heterosexual marriage, for example, is the only valid kind because it's capable of procreation. This is not an idea that is founded in scripture. Right. So, um, yeah, basically, uh, my concluding uh, uh, 
my concluding instruction to any straight men who happen to be listening to this is make sure that you educate yourself and commit yourself to making sure that there's the mutuality that there should be in your relationship. And uh, I'm probably going to get a bunch of DMs with from women thanking me later. No need to do that. It's just in the scriptures. <laughs> but yeah, okay. but we'll see. Um, I, I, I just feel a little bit awkward talking about this, and I'm not sure why. I think it's part in part because of the way we've been um, socialized to be sex negative. And some of that is not that I'm sex negative, but now that I'm thinking about how my voice is going to res- resound throughout the world, I'm a little bit hesitant to to talk about this knowing how how the the world thinks about this but anyway we should move on because i'm gonna let me just quickly talk about some other things in exodus 21 exodus 21 okay still in exodus 21 still in exodus 21 right we're gonna go to verse 16 all right any uh, this is also in uh robert altler uh alter's translation and he who kidnaps a man and sells him or he is found in his hands, is doomed to die, okay? There is literally a prohibition against kidnapping someone and selling them into slavery, and that deserves the punishment of death, according to this. And even if you kidnap them and haven't sold them yet, but this kidnapped individual is found in your possession before you had a chance to to sell him, then you are also still liable to death. So this idea that enslavement, it has a blanket uh, approval in the scriptures in every possible form, in every manner, is not the case. Uh, And I just wanted to name that here. Okay. Um, Let's go to Exodus 21, verse 37. Should a man steal an ox or a sheep and slaughter it or sell it, five cattle shall he pay for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Notice that here we have reparations. We have restitutions. If you deprive someone of something, at least in, in terms of livestock, you have to repay it fivefold or fourfold. Mm. And people say, well, where's reparations in the Bible. And we've talked about this, and you've talked marvelously about it on other occasions as well. But I just wanted to name that. These are the some of the verses that get left out of the Come Follow Me curriculum. Hmm. Let's go to chapter 22. 22, okay. So I'm going to look at verses 20 through 22. Here we have some economic and social justice Uh, texts you shall not cheat a sojourner and you shall not oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of egypt and that sojourner you could also translate as stranger or foreigner Mm -hmm. no widow or orphan shall you abuse if you indeed abuse them when they cry out to me i will surely hear their outcry so, oh, there's just so many things I could talk about the, about this, right? The treatment right. of foreigners, the treatment of economically vulnerable, uh, the widows and orphans, right? Um, it's not just about the nuclear family here. It's about ex- extended families. It's about taking care of the community. It's about economic justice. It's about the fact that people from the margins absolutely will cry out to God, and God has guaranteed to hear them, right? 
like the widows and orphans, the Lord says, I'm going to listen to the most vulnerable when they accuse you of mistreating them, and I'm going to take their side. Like, I could preach for an hour on this, but I'm not going to. Let's look at later in this same chapter, verses 25 and 26. If you should indeed take and pledge your fellow man's cloak before the sun comes down, you shall return it to him. For it is his sole covering, it is his cloak for his skin. In what can he lie? So um, part of this is that people get paid daily before sundown. So they get their wages that same day for the work that they did. And so if someone says, hey, let me borrow something from you, and I'll pay you back tonight when I, after I get paid, and you take away my cloak as collateral, well, you got to give it back to me. Um, yeah, you got to get back to me. So economic justice, fair labor uh, practices, um, labor rights, all of these things are here in the text. And it's not really couched in modern language, but but of course it's not. So, uh, but it's there. Like all these things that people think I'm a radical communist, socialist, liberal. I mean, I'm not. I'm actually being faithful to the text. Like we need to structure mm-hmm. society in a way that takes care of uh, the poor, that takes care of the widows and orphans, that takes care of laborers, that um, takes care of these things uh, in a systemic way. What do you think about these things so far? I mean, you're right. Just, I I don't know where I want to, what I want to really address here. I obviously agree with your interpretation of the text, but I'm also just thinking as you speak, just how obvious it is that we don't be reading our texts like that as more, as members of the church, as, Christians in general, uh, as people who profess a faith, like something that my mind has been caught up a lot in these uh, last two weeks in particular, for no particular reason, I don't think. Mm -hmm. But um, maybe it's just because I've been exposed to more homophobia within the church, more bigotry within the church. But I was just thinking to myself, how, how, how do you have a theology as rich and as robust as the one that we got? yet having so much of your faith identity tied up in queer phobia that you believe that challenging queer phobia equals apostasy. Like we have all of this richness in here. We have all these parts that encourage compassion, that encourage economic justice, that encourage, uh, you know, labor justice, that, that encourage, mm-hmm. you know, these various kinds of compassion and care for our communities like those are the parts that I wish people knew more about us because the scriptures have much more to say about all of that stuff than it does to say about, you know, queer phobia, which is, mm. in my opinion, mm. still nowhere to be found in our sacred text. And like you said, people are calling you radical or they're calling you a crazy socialist communist leftist because you say what is literally in the scriptures, which betrays how little people really be looking at these scriptures or how little they're committed to what our ideals as Christians are supposed to be, our ideals as people who profess a faith Mm -hmm. in God is supposed to be, which, you know, makes me wonder what our real religion is, because it's, it's not the religion of this God that we are talking about this week. It is not the religion 
of you know the Christ that we supposedly worship. Um, this is this is worth a whole. There, there's at least a whole book written about this very idea, um, and you know we're obviously not going to talk about that today. But I'm just thinking about that as you mm-hmm. speak because this is something you regularly say on the show, Derek. And you know I can hear the inflection of your voice when you regularly say regularly say the words. It's in the scriptures, like it's something like that. I'm not doing <laughs> that. A- sounded a lot like me. I'm sorry. <laughs> like I'm trying to sound like you. It's it's not you, obviously, but. <laughs> That is something that just echoes in my head every time you say something that is supposed to be radical, but it actually isn't. It is something that is in the scriptures. It is something that we are covenantally obligated to do, yet it sounds radical because we don't actually know what's in our text. And it sounds radical because of this this, uh, big uh, uh, filter that people put over the scriptures, right? People are going to filter it through the latest general conference talks, which I don't know if we've had um, enough con- conference talks about economic justice. We've got little hints of it, right. but uh, but this is a significant priority for Jesus. Like I think the two things that Jesus condemned the most are economic injustice. Think about everything he said about rich people, and then hypocrisy, especially religious leaders hurting other people. Like those are the two big things that he he made a big stink about. And um, it's a choice to to prioritize some verses of scripture and and ignore some others, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I think that we've been culturally conditioned to like not take these things seriously. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, why not? We should be there. And I want to name like a lot of people say, oh, um, we we don't follow the these Old Testament laws anymore. We don't we don't do the law of Moses anymore. I'm like. Some of them we do, and some of them we should, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of these other verses, we may have to tweak them a little bit, right? Because not everyone has donkeys, and not everyone has, you know, the it doesn't look exactly the same, mm-hmm. uh, and we may not pay everyone every day like they did in, in these times. But, but a lot of the principles, a lot of the values, definitely need to be uh, transferred. And uh, let's go on to another one of these verses four and five of chapter twenty-three. Should you encounter your enemy's ox or his donkey straying, you must surely return it to him. Should you see your adversary's donkey sprawling under its load and would hold back from assisting him, you shall surely assist him. So this is interesting. There is not an explicit command to love your enemies in the Torah. Mm. But there is this text that says if you see your enemy's ox wandering away, you need to help. Uh, so you're indirectly helping your enemy, but you are directly held, helping this animal who's either lost and hungry or in danger or is laboring under a load, and you're obligated to assist that animal. So we here have indications of animal rights. Now, I'm not saying the Bible is perfect on animal rights. You know, I'm not perfect on animal rights either, mm-hmm. but uh, there's there's glimpses of this beauty there that we learn line upon line, and this is the line that we're on, and we should develop those lines and see what happens uh, more. Yeah. I think something else that is worth saying, um, and I think you've said this on the show before, but as succinctly as I can remember it, every one of the text's writings in the scriptures are written to a particular group of people to address a particular issue or circumstance in a particular time and Mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. It's a very particular uh, book. 
Yeah, hence your hence your statement that we got to, you know, make some tweaks and adjustments based on our particular context, which is why mm -hmm. there's a lot of the Old Testament or sorry, a lot of the Hebrew Bible that we don't adhere to, you know, like the prohibitions against charging interest on loans or burning incense or eating shellfish and pork, um, you know, versus some other things that we that we ought to do because we're just not operating in the same social, cultural, political right. context as, uh, you know, as the Hebrew Bible. So that is, that is worth mentioning. And that is also worth considering as we try to figure out what exactly these laws, what exactly these scriptures might mean for us. Some of these principles, like all these principles are timeless, but a lot of these particularities have to be uh, thought through and worked through as we think about you know, right. how this affects us in uh, this day and age. Exactly. And and you'll see this as people will say, well, why isn't there like pro-gay stuff uh, in the in the Bible? And I'm like, there actually is. Because it didn't is. exist. Sorry. There is if you if you read it correctly. But on the other on the other uh, hand, you're right, is some of these issues were not addressed with the same uh, conscientiousness that we're addressing them now. Some of mm -hmm. these questions never came up. And uh, so if, so of course it doesn't doesn't address these things. Um, and some cases where the Bible does address things, it may not address them fully correctly. Like I really wish we had more of a condemnation of slavery in both testaments than currently exists from what we see there now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and this caused a grave injustice. And if you look at the preachers in the South in the United States before the Civil War, some of them made some semi good arguments from their own uh, perspective on these things. Because, yes, the Bible did literally uh, permit slavery in both Testaments. Now, there were restrictions and conditions and a whole bunch of other stuff, but there was no empire-wide complete abolition of slavery ever where anywhere called for in the, uh, in, in, the, in the Scriptures, at least in any explicit way. Now, we have... Jesus preaching from Isaiah in Luke 4 about he came to liberate the captives, right? You've got all the, you've got the Exodus narrative which is about liberating the captives. You've got all this liberation language, but um and eventually the abolitionists prevailed. But like I'm saying, the Bible is a product of its of its historical context and the language that it was given in and the people that it was given to and there's human fingerprints all over the scriptures anyway. Um, and we see this, I didn't talk about it, but at the beginning of Exodus 21, you have the situations under which a Hebrew individual who is in poverty can sell themselves into slavery. Mm -hmm. And it's there, and it, it obviously makes me a little bit uncomfortable. But what it does do is prove that the, the southern uh, enslavers were wrong. It is not permitted by the Torah anywhere to go and kidnap people into slavery. That is not that is not the slavery. Um, uh, now, it, it, you, someone could say, "Well, it might be as equally bad to uh, to exploit someone's poverty and and let them sell themselves into slavery." Yes, that's problematic too. Um, but the other thing about this slavery is that it was not perpetual. The slave goes free at the end of of seven years in uh, Exodus 21. I, I probably should not talk about this because I'm going to say something that I probably shouldn't. 
But I, I'm not trying to say slavery is okay, and I'm not trying to say that the slavery as practiced in the in the Bible is a little bit better. That's not what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Uh, but I'm just saying that I'm kind of wrestling out loud with the text. And I think that's something we need to do is wrestle with the text. Yeah. Uh, did you want to say anything if from chapter 31 about the blessing of the Sabbath? Um What's interesting here is that keeping the Sabbath was actually a capital uh, crime issue. That if yeah, you you could die for breaking the Sabbath. Yep, you die for breaking the Sabbath. Um, the important thing here is that the Sabbath was intended to be a covenant. It's the sign of the covenant. Let me look at this. Uh, let me find it. In uh, I have to find this. Okay. So we're in like 31, starting in verse 12? Yeah, starting with, with verse 12. Okay. And yet the, and the Lord said to Moses, saying, And you speak to the Israelites, saying, Yet my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign. The Hebrew word is ot. Same thing as the um, uh, circumcision and same thing as the sign of the rainbow. Uh, a sign between me and you for your generations to know that I am the Lord who hallows you, and you shall keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Those who profane it are doomed to die, for whoever does a task on it, that person shall be cut off from the midst of his people. Six days shall tasks be done, and on the seventh day an absolute Sabbath holy to the Lord. Whosoever does a task on the Sabbath day is doomed to die. So a couple of things here. Number one is that it is a covenant that separates the people of Israel from other nations who worked seven days a week. Uh-huh. And uh, this is a visible manifestation. And even today, Shabbat-keeping Jews end up, in a sense, um, well, segregated is not the right word, but there is this division, right? Jews can't do everything else because they have to be home. They have, or they have to be at the synagogue because they can't use cars, right? There's a whole bunch of ways that uh, Sabbath observance prevents Jews from completely mingling with everyone else, right? Like, oh, I can't show up. I can't do that because, you know, there's just ways that it actually marks people out very distinctly as a people. Kind of like circumcision mm-hmm. marks you out distinctly as well. I mean, I mean, that's, that's I don't know. I mean, we don't, we don't. It's not as visible, right? I mean, I'm, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Um, it's a marker of the uh, It is a mark though. that if in the, at least in the ancient world, it would have been more visible because men exercised naked mm-hmm. in the Greco-Roman world. So, and the, and the uh, other peoples in the ancient Near East circumcised, but the Greeks and the Romans did not. So at least in the Greco-Roman era, um, it would have it marked out Jews as, as different. But anyway... This Sabbath uh, similarly marks people out as different. It unites people more with the Creator God. The um, and if we go back to the to the Exodus twenty text on the Sabbath, we see that it's not just you who has to rest, but your uh, enslaved individuals and your animals also have to rest. Which to me is an is a labor issue and an animal rights issue as well. So I've talked way too much about these other things, and we haven't even gotten to the to the appointed text for the oh no i feel so bad no we got to it we're in 31 so we just oh 31 is already part of our reading i believe so 31 through 34 and 24 oh yeah okay so we good my friend we 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 started on the material (laughs) okay 
Well, let's go and talk about um, the golden calf incident. Woo! Let's talk about it. I want to hear your thoughts first because I've been talking for a while. You go first. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Um, so this whole golden calf incident, um, you know, Moses done been on the mountain for a minute and the Israelites were getting impatient. And I, I feel like I got a name at this point that there are productive ways to handle impatience. Um, like I'm impatient when it comes to certain things within the church, whether it comes to, you know, more aggressive fighting against racism or, you know, a more proper reckoning with our, uh, with our queer phobic policies. Like, I think that impatience is fine and we got a right to be impatient, but what happened with the children of Israel was a repudiation of a covenant to follow God. And that was just not it. Their impatience led them to repudiate uh, their covenant because they were tired of waiting on Moses. They literally told Aaron to make new gods for them. And Aaron, having made the same covenant as all of them and received the same Ten Commandments as all of them, tragically uh, relented. He took the riches they had plundered from Egypt, riches that they were entitled to, like let's make sure that's out there. Mm-hmm. They, they, they slayed for 430 years to make Egypt wealthy. These are riches that God told them to plunder, that they might build a sanctuary for the God who brought them out of Egypt. And these people of God use those reparative and consecrated riches to build the God of their oppressors. Because let's just address that much. That's what this calf is. The Egyptians and the Canaanites, yep. uh, you know, they were known for their deities shaped as calves, specifically uh, young bulls. The calf is a symbol of, uh, of virility, of, uh, of male aggression and power, of uh, prosperity or money, and uh, the kind of alpha masculinity confronted back in the book of Genesis. Yo, in New York, we got the Wall Street Bull, you know? And for good luck, you got to rub the nose, you got to rub the horns, you got to rub the testicles, because that is like where it all mm-hmm. is. Um, but anyway, <laughs> th- this worship of the golden calf is just a dramatic uh return to the Egypt that the Lord led them out of. Not not physically, of course, but spiritually. And that's what makes this whole thing awful. And what makes it worse is that Aaron ascribes their escape from Egypt, who had this false god, he ascribed their escape from Egypt to this calf, calling it the Lord that brought them out of Egypt. Like that's what Mm -hmm. makes this Mm -hmm. especially egregious and especially Mm -hmm. dangerous and awful. And things get even worse in verses five and six. Aaron says they'll have a festival to the Lord and they offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. They're calling this idol the Lord now. And that's important for a couple of reasons. But the big one that I see is that they are mixing their covenant worship that the Lord has actually commanded them because the Lord did ask for sacrifices and burnt offerings. And they're offering that to the calf now. The Lord, they, they, they are mixing that part of the worship with their mm-hmm. false worship of this calf and somehow don't see a problem, which teaches us a very important lesson. Uh, the, the lesson that I see anyway is that Christianity mixed with idolatry is still idolatry. Like we see this a bunch today mm-hmm. when Amen. we see uh, mixing all kinds of our idols with our faith. We see it in the prosperity gospel. We see it in how we use the family proclamation and the law of chastity as tools of queer phobia. We see mm-hmm. this in the deification of our leaders of this church. You know, ooh, yes. Like we see this in so many things. Like we we were talking earlier about uh, you know this tendency 
of us to not really fully recognize what is in our scriptures or for us to hold up certain standards like the family or like uh, the leaders of the church. And we like all we, we, we idolize these things. We, we just read a few weeks, like at the beginning of the year about why the people of Noah got flooded. You know, they basically idolized their families. They were like, no, we're not going to repent. No, we're not going to engage in justice because we got, you know, we, we, we took to wife the daughters of God and we took mm-hmm. and we have great children. We have great sons and they're like the ones of old. Like they basically idolized their families and used that as an excuse to not uh, repent. I, I just wanted to make sure that message got put out there, that Christianity mixed with idolatry is still idolatry and it's really difficult mm-hmm. and it's even harder to say sorry harder to see when it's mixed uh with that idolatry so um anyway i'll have some words i want to say about uh god's response to this whole thing but i want to see if you wanted to say anything about uh the golden calf before we talk about those consequences the satan doesn't work by convincing us to do bad things mm-hmm. uh like absolutely bad things satan makes uh wins when we do things that are second best something that is good but of a lesser good than god and by getting us to choose a lesser good there is often an accompanying trade-off evil with it right mm-hmm. and so i think the family is the best example of this because families are great i love families yeah i'm mm-hmm. not like anti-family but if people prioritize their family or a particular image of the family that is a mommy and a daddy and 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 biological children and all this other mess if people idolize that over god then they end up hurting people that don't fit that family so yeah family is good but if you idolize family then you have fallen into satan's trap i think satan has gotten smart it doesn't satan doesn't tempt us with obvious evils anymore but tempts us with things that are second best and absolutely with the leadership of the church. Like, I have no doubt that that they are good men who are trying to do the best they can with the limitations that they have. Like, I don't think that they're evil. However, when we put them in the place that is reserved for God alone, we have fallen into Satan's trap. And that, that is so easy to do because uh, they're otherwise so... And the same thing happens with the Bible and Protestants worshiping the Bible instead of God. Idolatry is when you have that one spot that's reserved for God and you stick something else in there. And usually the thing that we stick in there is something that's second best, whether it's prophets and apostles, whether it's the scriptures, whether it's the family, whether it's the whatever, um, or your political ideology. I don't want anyone to put, no matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or or what or, or something else, putting your political party in that place that should be for God is wrong on all sides. Right? And I think we are socialized in a time where people's political values now trump their uh pun intended, trump their <laughs> their religious values. Yeah. Um so yeah, we definitely need to uh talk about the consequences of idolatry and i think we get some dramatic and uh powerful narrative about the dangers of idolatry and how important it is to root out idolatry uh 
in the mo- in the strongest terms possible, our narrative condemns this idolatry of of putting something else. I, I want to name a couple of things. Number one is that Aaron was the senior available priesthood leader at the time because Moses went up the mountain. Who knows if he's ever coming back? And Aaron mm-hmm. was had seniority, and he put his priesthood um, authenticity or his priesthood uh, a stamp of approval on this calf. Isn't that profound? Quite, quite. He put his priesthood stamp of approval on this calf, and the people, not all of them, remember, some of them didn't, and we're going to get to those, a lot of the people went along with it. They sustained their leader, if you want to use that term. They uh, went along with it and didn't question and didn't say, hey, wait a minute. They didn't hold Aaron accountable. They didn't hold Aaron accountable to the covenant they just got, right? Right, right. Uh, they did not hold Aaron accountable to the character of God that they learned going out of Egypt. As you said, they went back to Egypt where they um, had a, a diversity of gods with you have the cow god Hathor, for example. Um, yeah, what what's up with that? Like why – like this can be very easily happen where good people will go along with a powerful leader who has divine authority. Mm-hmm. And in the end, it's the people who resist because we later see how, like I said, there's evidence that some people didn't go along with it. Those are the ones that actually get the the final say. And kind of like modeling the God after the gods of Egypt is very important because uh, it's an important lesson because that shows us even today when we commit idolatry, we want our gods to be familiar. We want our like God to be homophobic. Yeah. We what? What was that? I was just saying to look like the gods of the world or to look like the gods that, you know, exactly are out there. Like we want God to be homophobic. We want to be God. We want God to be white. We want God to be male. We want God to be in any image other than the actual God who is beyond description. And so, um, so yeah, that is, that is, uh, um, Something be named. Let's look at the aftermath of what happens with uh, Moses bargaining with God yes, afterward for the uh, on behalf of the people of Israel. Yes. So at this point, uh, God says uh, that they're going to destroy the Israelites for their wickedness, but uh, proposes the solution that uh, they'd be able to make Moses into a great nation instead. And rather than embrace that idea, uh, we see Moses do something interesting. Moses pushes back and begins a negotiation with God. Uh, mm-hmm. He pleads with God to not destroy Israel. He didn't appeal to any you know, merit on the children of Israel's part, but rather God's character and God's... Uh, God's character. Yeah, God's character and God's reputation. Uh, he said the Egyptians would ridicule God's name, saying that they had brought Israel out only to kill them. And then he reminds the Lord of, uh, of their promise to the patriarchs to make their offspring a great nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the Lord relents and doesn't wipe them out. Another point, uh, important point from this that uh, you brought up on last week's episode, I believe, Derek, is that God says they don't change. Like God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But they also declare that they may choose to relent and not bring threatened judgment upon mm-hmm. a people mm-hmm. should they change their ways. For example, in Jeremiah uh, 18, verse 8, the Lord says, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them, close quote. 
And uh, to bring it back to your point that you brought earlier in this episode and last week's episode, we can negotiate with the Lord. The Lord mm-hmm. interacts with us. Moses didn't tell God anything that they ain't already know, but uh, Moses appealed to uh, God based on what he knew of the character of God, like God's faithfulness to their promises. Uh, this suggests that mm-hmm. God is free to change with regard to their actions without changing at all in character. They are free to make changes in how they interact with their people. So then God's relenting doesn't change their attitude toward their sin. In fact, we're going to see later in this chapter that more accountability will come for the children of Israel's wickedness. But God upholds Mm. their reputation, remains faithful to their word, and displays grace, which is pretty cool. And we're going to see this kind of intercession again in the next chapter, verses uh, 12 through 17, where, you know, God has told the children of Israel that God will not go into the promised land with them because of their wickedness. But again, Moses negotiates with God and God reverses that threat. When Moses appealed to the status to uh, the status of the children of Israel as God's people, when they when when Moses hold God's accountable to their mm-hmm. own words that mm-hmm. God would go up with them, and then declaring, I, I just think this is so beautiful. When Moses declares, "If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here," basically he's like, "If we're if you're not going, then we're not going. Like we're not going there without you." Moses mm-hmm. hadn't yet seen the full glory of God at this point, but God, but Moses didn't know enough to know that he'd rather be in the wilderness with God than in the promised land without them, which I just think is so beautiful and such a brilliant lesson for the rest of us that we would much, that it's much better for us to have God's presence than God's uh, supposed blessing. Uh, the promised land, in my opinion, is just not going to be the promised land uh, without God. It's got some uh, Psalm 84 vibes. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a, this is verse 10, where it said, where the psalmist says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than live in the tents of wickedness. So, yeah, just, just another beautiful truth, I feel, that it's much better to be in the wilderness with God than in the promised land without them, which I think has a lot yeah. of symbolism and a lot of relevance to uh, to us as a people. And I'd like to get into that a little bit more when we talk about Moses pitching his tent outside of the camp of Israel. Mm-hmm. So I'm, so I'm going to wait till then, but I want to see if you had any more to say about this immediate consequence of Israel's wickedness. Yeah, I had a, 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 a na- uh, some thoughts. One is okay. to name that what Moses does is persuasion. He yeah. uses the priesthood power of love and persuasion to, to hold God accountable to God's promises, like you've said and like I've said since, well, I've always said this. But we see this especially with um, the flood narrative and the sign of the rainbow is God loves being held accountable. So how dare you... Not you, James Jones, but you, the hypothetical listener. How dare you come to me and say, which way do the leaders face? Okay, the leaders sometimes need to face God on our behalf and persuade God of the thing that needs to be done. Right? It was Elder Packer who famously said, which way do you face? To um, uh, to, to leaders of the church. Do you uh, represent God to the people or do you stand with the people facing God and representing the people to God? And as we see from the narrative of the scriptures, it's a little of both. It's a lot of both. And you can't do one without the other. And so how dare anyone come to me and say, which way did the leaders of the church face? And mm-hmm. I think we get uh, 
this idolatry of the leaders when we make them only face one direction. We talked about yeah. this a lot last week. One Direction. Yeah. There, sh- yeah. there should be a band called One Direction. <laughs> <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. Um, but yeah, which way do you face? In this case, Moses went. So it, so when when God said, "Okay, I'm going to kill all, kill all of Israel." Moses didn't say, "Oops, I'll just sustain you with that." He, Moses pushed back. A true prophets push back, even if they don't prevail, they'll at least try pushing back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And God maybe will have some other option or some other explanation. But I absolutely think that this text is about Moses. We see Moses uh, at Moses's best, and it wasn't Moses isn't pushing back because of a lack of faith. But because of faith, yeah. right? And Moses trusts yeah. the promises and holds God's. How 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 more faithful can you be? Mm-hmm. Like here I am, a queer member of the church, pushing us to be the church that God restored us to be and is mm-hmm. restoring us to be. And people mm-hmm. are saying that I'm less faithful. I'm like, no, I actually believe right that this is God's restored church. I wouldn't be right. saying and doing these things if I didn't believe this. Right. Right. I am the one more than any that really believes in and sustains that our leaders can take this issue to God and get new revelation. Like that mm-hmm. is literally what it means to believe in in living prophets. Like mm-hmm. we have a Moses on the earth today. Like mm-hmm. we have someone who can take these things to God. Right. It's just that we're not letting them do that. Um, we as a culture. Let's talk a little bit about this presence because there's this fundamental irony here in that Moses went up the mountain. Okay, so the people were deprived of one of their access points to God, right? Moses was this spokesperson. Moses went up the mountain, so for all they knew, no more Moses and no more God. And so it was the sensation of the absence of God that that prompted them to make this little idol out of uh, to replace God, or to some extent replace Moses, uh, or what they got. Uh, of God through Moses. So the irony is that they were feeling God's absence, so they made this idol in order to feel the presence of a deity. But it was that very <laughs> idolatry yep. that caused this yep. tent to be uh, that God would meet outside the camp mm-hmm. and then caused um, this this absence of God. So yes. it, I think it's really interesting how that all comes right back around. Yeah. Can I talk about that too, by the way, the tent? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So like uh, to be, to just reiterate this consequence of Israel's wick- wickedness that was given back in uh, verse three in chapter 33, the Lord promises to drive out the inhabitants of the land, but the Lord says that they won't go with Israel because of their wickedness. Uh, starting in verse seven, uh, the Lord seems to make good on this promise when Moses pitches a tent outside of the Israelite camp to to meet with God rather than pitching the tent within the camp. Even then, God doesn't mm-hmm. appear to be completely abandoning them, yet Moses is able to speak with God face-to-face in this tent. But if anyone wanted to speak with God, according to verse 7, they would need to, uh, quote, go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside of the camp, close quote. So God's presence could still be accessed, but not within 
the camp of the wicked Israelites, not among the people mm-hmm. that constructed the false idols of their oppressors with the consecrated wealth God gave them, not among the people that willfully returned to the ways and the gods of Egypt that God deliberately and purposefully led them out of so soon after being delivered. One of the immediate analogs that we see here is that this is basically what the church is supposed to be for us. This simple thing, this trek, the Israelites are supposed to make outside of the camp. That's a reminder that God makes that mm-hmm. God makes their presence available to anyone who makes the effort to seek them. But we do have to be willing to break away from the noise of the wickedness that surrounds us if we want to hear what God has to tell us. Another analog exactly. I see, though, is uh, unfortunately people have had to pitch their tents outside of the church because of the bigotry that exists here, because. Mm-hmm. The church is still too invested in the idol of whiteness. Spaces like the Black LDS Legacy Conference had to be created outside of the church's camp so that the black saints might be filled, so that we might be able to more fully communicate with God in ways that we can't do in our own meeting houses. Because of the idol of homophobia, many people have put distance between themselves and the church just so they could communicate with the God who apparently won't communicate with them in their quote-unquote sin of living authentically. And uh, this is why I really don't mourn that much, by the way, for marginalized individuals that distance themselves from the church, or at the very least, I mourn more for the church, because the people distancing consistently are some of the best of us, and they are finding happiness, and they are finding God, they are finding communication with the divine when they pitch their tents outside of the camp of the church, because within the camp of the church, the idol of homophobia of queer phobia is keeping them from being able to authentically be themselves and therefore authentically uh, worship. So this idea of pitching uh, the tent outside of the camp in order to more fully uh, communicate with God is, uh, you know, something beautiful that I see in the, in the text here, but also something I see that is an unfortunate byproduct of, uh, of our idolatry of our own, of our own wickedness. Mm-hmm. Even this podcast itself is kind of a product of that. And I, you know, I don't want to explicitly say wickedness, but the reason this space exists is because it could not exist during our, you know, our three hour, then three hour block and now two hour block meetings. We can't talk about these things at church, or at the very least, it's very difficult to. For a lot of the people who listen to this show, I know that it's difficult to have these conversations at church. So we got to pitch our tent outside of the camp of the church in order to more fully have this conversation with God. And notice what the people have to do if they want to communicate with God. They have to leave the they have to leave the camp and come to the margins of the camp. They have to step outside of the camp in order to more fully or in order to communicate with God at all. And I just think that's yet another uh, witness to the fact that God is found on the margins. God is found outside of the center. God God is found outside of the camp of the Israelites. And uh, we have to go Mm -hmm. to the tent Mm -hmm. uh, that's pitched outside in order to find them there. Yeah, and I just want to say a lot of us want to idolize the temple, right? That's another thing. Uh, So this tent of meeting... The, the tabernacle, the, the, the temple, David's temple, uh, which was built by Solomon, and then the temple today. Think about Jesus' Jesus's attitude towards the temple. He turned the tables in the temple. Like he, you know, that is, he, that should, I think, be our primary um, 
uh, engagement. One of our primary modes of engagement with the temple is just is not to, oh this temple it's this like beautiful place that that's you know there's peace. Well, yeah, there's that, but there's also like what need what what injustices are infesting the temple that need to be driven out, and mm-hmm. there's a lot, right? The injustices of patriarchy, ableism, misogyny, transphobia, homophobia, queerphobia, um, racism, right? Like think about yeah. all the white white people in the temple. I mean, not the white patrons, but the white, <laughs> but the but the whiteness in our images of God, mm-hmm. in the images of, of, of uh, in the in the temple film, in the uh, in the portraits, like there's a bunch of whiteness there, um, and there's a bunch yeah. of whiteness in the way that we worship on Sunday and in the temple. Like there's just a bunch of stuff here that we haven't completely rooted out. Uh, and I want to name that. Speaking of completely rooting out, that <laughs> gets back to the problematic text about the um uh punishing the idolaters with death right so the levites did not uh did not engage with the uh with the um were not involved with this idolatry and when moses says who's on my side the levites showed up and uh then were instructed to kill the idolaters now this is a really problematic text uh I probably would have handled it some different way, but I did not write this text, and I don't really have the um, power to rewrite the text. And in fact, if I rewrite it, we might miss some of the theology that we get from res- from wrestling with the text, right? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I, I, I've been trying to, like, I came across this episode in the text, and I was trying to make some sense of it. I did find a cross reference in Corinthians, First Corinthians ten five through six, mm-hmm. and that seemed to suggest that this this death uh, is a warning to us to not desire evil as the Israelites did. So uh, I, I don't know to understand that the wages of their sin, like idol worship, is death. That is true, and that is compelling, but it is still pretty extreme. Um, it's it's still very violent, and I feel like we could have learned that the wages of idol worship is death without having to see, you know, the Levites murder their friends and their family members. So I'm, I'm sitting with all that violence and I haven't totally made a uh, peace with it. I, I, I have nothing really to add except to acknowledge that it's there. And there seems to be some explanations for why it's there in the text, but they're still not sitting well with me because they're so violent. I'm not a pacifist like you, Derek, but even like, but I, but I still have, you know, limits. And I'm saying this as somebody mm-hmm. who knows good and well that there have been extreme punishments elsewhere in the scriptures for things like, I mean, we talked about it earlier, charging interest on loans or not keeping the Sabbath day holy. Those things could actually get you killed. And that doesn't seem to be proportionate response, a proportional punishment to the offense given. Um, but but the whole thing just seems to be trying to communicate that sin is no joke and the wages of this kind of sin is death with what feels like a very extreme example that I haven't made peace with. So that that's all I have to contribute to this. And it's not right. much, but it is my own personal yeah. wrestle with the text. So, so I'm not trying to justify this uh, violence in the text, but I do want to uh, um, sort of 
wrestle enter into the world of the text and and see what's going on here and let's talk about that so i think for you know what's funny is in our culture we don't really have a sense of the holy or the sacred or the set apart right um everything's all the same everything's whatever we don't have this sort of um uh, uh, perhaps the the only exception would be if there's royalty like if if you went in front of the the queen of england you would behave a little differently right other than that um it's hard to really relate and i think that these biblical texts are trying to relate to us in certain symbols that that there's a majesty to god there's a foreignness to god there's a sacredness and otherness i mean sacred doesn't even work but because what does that mean? It's a set apartness. It's a completely mm-hmm. differentness, and I think that sort of awe and respect and fear and reverence and caution is just you're in the presence of something way bigger and way more powerful and way more uh, uh, unordinary. Right? This is not ordinary life when you enter into the presence of God, and I think we're trying to we as Latter Day Saints are trying to replicate some of that in our temples. But this text is saying that there's something here that is so profound that idolatry equals death, right? Idolatry needs to be punished with death. That is how serious this is. Or the wages of idolatry is death. Like, I see that as well. Um. It has to do with the sort of long-term purity of Israel. I think I re- recall certain rabbis, I can't even remember the source now, but saying that the reason that they killed the um, uh, that they killed the idolaters wasn't a punishment for the, the past, right? Because it, had it been a punishment for the past, they could have been forgiven and like, oh no, we stopped. Like we'll never do it again. Like, why would you kill someone that in that situation? Because God is a God of grace and mercy and second chances and all this other stuff. I think the logic that I've read is that they were killed because they wouldn't stop, right? I that see. they kept on idolizing the golden calf, even after it had been destroyed. They kept on with their idolatry, and that was a long-term danger to the integrity of Israel going forward, right? If you have live idolaters... Uh, it now I'm not justifying this, right? I I still don't think it's appropriate to kill kill them, but but that is entering into the world of the text a suffi- significant enough of a mess that you just have to completely purify yourself of the of the um, idolaters. Um. Anyway, I I don't know if I caused more of a, a mess than I than I meant to, no, or if I'm good. sounding like I'm justifying it. But uh, clearly the world of the text would have felt that it was justified, I think. That they would look at it and I'm like, oh, yeah, of course they should be killed. Like, And so there's some assumptions that we don't perhaps share in our modern world. Maybe I should end by appealing to the text that's in ver- uh, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where you see that God really is a God of love. Let's see what it says. Okay. Uh, I'll start out with verse 5. And the Lord came down in the cloud and stationed himself with him there. And he invoked the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him. And this is this hymn is uh, Moses. And he called out, The Lord, the Lord, a 
a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and abounding in kindness and good faith, keeping kindness for the thousandth generation, bearing crime, trespass, and offense. Yet he does not wholly acquit, reckoning the crime of fathers with sons and sons of sons to the third generation and the fourth. Close quote. So basically we've got like God's mercy. You know how people say, oh, you've got to balance mercy and, and justice, or you've got yeah. to balance law and, and grace. Like, mm-hmm. no, God doesn't balance them. Look, there's an asymmetry. The, the 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 softy fluffy god is for thousands of generations and the anger is only for four generations mm-hmm. it's not at all compare and we've talked about this before that biblical justice um and biblical mercy are way different than what a modern legal scholar would would think they are right justice is being in right relationship it's not something to be afraid of unless you're the oppressor but even then you get you get back into right relationship and same thing with mercy. Mercy isn't letting people get away with injustice. It's healing the injustice. It's um, so these things don't really need to be balanced the way. Like it's not like uh, a lenience needs to be balanced with a strictness, right? That's not what's going on here. I think they're united in a very uh, profound way in the character of God, and we'll see this in Deuteronomy six, where um, God is one. The Shema in Hebrew begins, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, uh, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so here we see this. There's a unity, but but we really see this this gracious God, slow to anger, not not having a temper, not being quick to to hurt people, right? And whose mercy and grace and forbearance of stuff far, far, far outstrips the desire for vengeance. And so um, even Jonah appeals to this. Jonah in uh, the fourth chapter, the beginning of the fourth chapter of Jonah says, appeals to this type of language as to why he didn't go to Nineveh. He says, I didn't go to Nineveh because I knew, I knew that you would would forgive them. I knew that you are a slow to anger God, a compassionate God. You're a softy. You're going to let them live. And that's why I, Jonah, didn't go preach repentance to Nineveh. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> we know how that story ended. Yeah. So, um, you know Elsa from Frozen? Yes. Why should you never give Elsa a helium balloon? Because oh she might goodness. let it go. I knew that was coming. I knew it was coming. <laughs> I was like, it's going to have something to do with let it go. As soon as you said balloon, I was like, crap. <laughs> That's all I have for today, and we are over time. But hopefully it's all worth it for our people. I'm sure it will jokes. be. All right, before we wrap up, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. You can find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com 
facebook.com slash podcast network. And also to remind you guys that uh, one of the podcast partners in the Dialogue Podcast Network, Bristlecone Firesides, we were actually featured on one of their episodes that just dropped a few days ago. So if you haven't checked that out just yet, be sure you check out the most recent episode of Bristlecone Firesides. You can find them at uh, dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, on Facebook by searching for us, and then at BTBLDS on Twitter and Instagram. That is correct. And I uh, want to give a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts. Also, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for uh, helping out with the social media stuff and the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These these outlines also include uh, the Faithful Feminist episodes from the same week, so you can have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me study guides. Mm -hmm. Uh, The link to the outlines is going to be in the show notes in addition to the drop-down menu on our website. Same goes for the transcripts. Am I forgetting anything, Derek? Do we got any events or anything like that coming up? Anything you're doing? No. Okay, cool. Then with that, I guess we are done. So thank you for joining us till we meet again next week. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I'll see you again next week with more Bible and more jokes. (laughs) 